know, it strikes me we would be better employed wringing my lady's pretty neck than shooting these poor devils of Protestants. What are we killing them for? Because they sing psalms in French and we sing them in Latin? Oh, boss, how do you know education? What do you think religious wars are all about? Ah, very good, very good. Here they come, gentlemen. Make your shots count. Will you please? For the second part of our interview with Dan True, uh, we are super excited that he is here to talk about talk to us about his upcoming supplement called The Book of Schemes. I must admit, when I first saw this, I was super excited about it because I love schemes and games. I always play that character. Uh, I have been I've been described by my my group by a number of things, but it always involves some sort of uh, ridiculous scheme. And I am super excited to hear all about this. Dan, what really inspired you towards doing a book of schemes? This is, I mean, this is not something that everybody does, right? I mean, this is, this is a little bit out of the norm for, for many people. It, it, it would be a weird world if, if everyone wrote uh, this particular book, at least. <laughs> um, I essentially, I've been working on this a long time. I, I started on this back in 2013, uh, so it's been some years underway. To my defense, I've graduated university, had, a, had, had three kids, I was married, and bought a house in the intervening period. So <laughs> I've, I've been quite busy. But it essentially came from, you know, the old mantra, uh, me, me deciding that I've, I wanted to do something with writing. I had already done this Ebron conversion, and I wanted to do something that could be published. I followed the mantra of write what you want to read or in this case, play yourself. I love setting up good schemes as a game master in my campaigns. Other than I've ran through Book of Quests, which you could say is one long scheme, but of course it's very combat heavy. And and, and other than that, almost, I think other than that, almost all my campaigns have focused on, on schemes to some degree. There's always a political element. There's always things unknown to, unknown to the players. The players should always be continually learning about the world and its players and what's going on. It's it's never very straightforward with me as a GM. And that has led me to having some awful sessions sometimes <laughs> back when I was less experienced because they had no idea what was going on and and I did not have the tools as a game master to tell them in a good way because of course it's not interesting if you just flat out tell them uh, so so I've had I had some really good sessions and I've had some really awful sessions and, but then as I got better and I usually I actually started I, I was already fairly good at it I would say when I started writing book schemes but just expressing the things on paper made me so much better and the test play for book schemes was a campaign that lasted three and a half years I think and it was an absolute joy especially seeing the conversion in, in, in how my players thought about things because I had one player who was always he's, he when he played D&D he always played the barbarian uh, you know just run up and smash things right, right. And, and to see him transition from so so in the other games he transitions from that type of player to when he started playing this game he wanted to be an ex-smuggler who whose smuggling gang had uh, had been uh, disintegrated by by some rivals and he was then you know down in the zone so he just stuck in the lower city with someone who wanted to kill him somewhere which he didn't know the identity of and then see him transfer from that to sitting around the table plotting very very intricate schemes laying out plans about how to take down uh, how, how to rig I think it was rig uh, rig an election in the merchants guild to ensure that one of the other players was selected as um, as alderman which is the foreman of a guild sort of a modern president 
of, of a guild. And, and to see that transition was just great. So I learned a lot from writing it myself. I wanted to to create a framework for others to do it, and I wanted to create a setting. And and another thought was that I was doing all this with reenactment and 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 studying old manuals, and was thinking mm, I'm sort of sort of missing a, a good fantasy world which is actually based on the 15th century, and it's not just a mix mix match of you no know, 11th century Templars and 16th century duelists all mixed together with plate armor wielding, uh, plate armor wearing. Knights. I wanted to make some with much more focus on. on I, I, like a fantasy take on how a 15th century city could actually look. And so I combined those two and started the work. And, and surely the vision has changed a lot from back in, in 2013. Uh, the scope right. has grown quite a bit, but I'm pretty down with the result, I'd say. So, If I was to say, all right, Dan's, Dan's book, of, book of Schemes, it looks like this. What sort of movies or books could I say to somebody and say, look, it's, it's, it looks like this? Yeah, the Rome HBO miniseries, the American adaption, at least, of the Borgias. I haven't seen the um, the other one. There are two adaptions of okay. the Borgias. Um, I have only seen one of. Them. I say those two hit this hit the theme pretty well because you have these. Of course, there's violence. Of course, there's some duels and fighting in the streets. And but they're all usually always as um either they're like oh shit something went wrong throw in the violence or they're um they're the consequence of a long period of scheming setting up an ambush or politically isolating an opponent uh, before you strike for instance there's if if you watch the borges tv series there's the um there's a situation where he's he's uh, poisoning a, a cardinal who's opposed to the pope but he can't if he had done that in like the first episode it wouldn't have worked he has to have a period where he's sort of isolating him politically before he can do it because otherwise otherwise the the fallback is gonna yeah he's gonna lose so much support to do it so if you want to kill someone sure make an assassination assassination have it be exciting and violent have someone in this case they use poison but you could have like the adventuring party scaling the walls to his mansion and murdering him in sleep and fighting his guards but have it as the consequence of a build-up where you first remove some of his supporters, then remove his chief of the guards um, by distracting him down to his wife because he hears something about her getting killed and something like that, right? Where you have a build-up that builds tension and then the violence as, as the crescendo of that. Mm. I would say those two, yeah. <laughs> I derailed a bit there, sorry. I always think my associations with the Three Musketeers, the way that I think about them, I, I do think about the films from the 70s, the two, the two films from the 70s especially. Now, of course, the Musketeers themselves don't do a lot of scheming necessarily themselves, but they're, they're kind of in a scheme, they're in several schemes. You know, when I think about th that kind of situation, you, it doesn't have to be very complicated necessarily to be in that kind of situation. That, that's, tr that's definitely true. You can have schemes as, as the backdrop, and I actually mentioned this as... That, that there are in, in the book I mentioned that there are different kinds of of scheme driven plays and one of them is that uh, that all the other actors around the players are very scheme driven mm -hmm. so they live in a world that's very scheme but they're sort of more reacting to them either because their lord is a schemer in the political stage but that but to them all the schemes are just like an adventure and quest generator that, that like throws nuggets of things for them to do right mm -hmm. and you can have Others like mine was very, very player-focused sandbox schemes where it's the players' own agendas in how they want to see the world evolve yeah. and how they want their own characters' positions to advance uh, that drives the entire plot. Of course, you can have a combination, 
where there's an yeah. underlying plot. And there are in, in Book of Schemes and in the city that I've de- uh, Gilden that I've detailed, there are some underlying underlying meter plots which you could use to drive the overall story. Which means that if your players don't do anything, there will still happen. There will still be things happening around them as the situation progresses. But you can have you can skip all that if you want and have a game about low status bakery trying to like outmaneuver the other bakers in the baker's guild to try to first of all make a more profitable business and then maybe down the road become alderman of the guild that sounds like so a fantastically, then- fantastically ridiculous scenario where the baker's guild <laughs> suddenly devolves into bloodshed i would be there in a heartbeat i would be like that's an amazing game that's quite a good example of the fairly accurate historical setup it's things like that that do kind of kick off very complicated and bloody schemes in history you know? yeah and and i read i read a book as as part of the research for this which is um life in a medieval city by geese i, I don't remember the f- uh, the first name i think i mentioned it uh, I, I credited it in the book somewhere it describes uh in france in the mid 13th century so it's two centuries removed from from my work but still the amount of intercity bickering between various guilds and who control who who owns shares in this water wheel and this guild wants to to uh, create two more water wheels across the river but the fishermen are blocking that because that will limit their availability to to uh, to put roosters there and, and things like these and it's just when when i read that book it was like really okay this is this is a whole layer of in, of intrigue that is almost never handled in games yeah. and the good thing you can have those plays be very non-violent if you want but they can also devolve into violence if you want some combat and then it, it becomes an excellent system for Mithras because a lot of the combats that I had was actually fairly low-key it was scraps and alleyways with daggers and eating knives and maybe legs broken off of stools but in, in Mithras that's still bloody interesting because of the special effects choice because of the reach management so so some of the best I, best fights I've had is, has actually been on the ground have been my players on the ground in a muddy hole fighting over who gets the knife and that's something again if you think about that in a movie, right? Your hero and your or your antagonist and your protagonist, or the protagonist and the antagonist fighting in the mud over who gets the knife. That's interesting. That's good television. That's if you make that, you know, people will be on the edge of the seat, especially if it's a series who dares kills their the, the characters, right? But try to do that combat in DD. All class abilities are irrelevant. All yeah. spells are irrelevant almost. It's not gonna it's not gonna be that interesting. It's not gonna be tense. But in Mithras it's tense, especially because you're not wearing armor. That knife can kill you. One bleed effect. In some of your gang descriptions, it reminded me of Gangs of New York. And I think that also potentially fits into this low-level scheming. You've got politics there. You've got quite high politics. You've got people on the street. You've got... Gangs of New York is a great example of that. It's a a good movie. I have those same three levels of of, of schemes that you have the... Each sort of suits a a different campaign, right? Or you can have them cross over. I I give guidelines on this as well. So there's, of of course, the noble layer where you have schemes around uh, landowning or council seats or who marries who right and then you have the the burgers who the merchants and the bakers and the fishermen and the bankers which is a huge stretch about upper middle class to very low middle class but because they're all guild organized they they sort of interact because even the fishermen's guild might have enough fishermen to have some pool in in the institution i've created for called the assembly of commons which is like the assembly of, of the guild representatives mm-hmm. so you can have you can have uh, schemes about the fishermen's guild trying to 
become more recognized by the other guilds and like rising in the world or one fisherman trying to transition to banking or whatever and uh, and of course there can be a lot of violence there too because you have guild monopolies which are broken and which sometimes which can can lead to violence and, and, and fighting in the streets and guild vigilantes burning down illegal inns and stuff like that and then of course you have the lower city with the underlying like black market stuff and there i've i've, pil- I've put we don't know a whole lot about that layer in medieval times if it even existed so so that's probably the layer where i've took most liberties with like describing proper 15th century because we have gangs and we have we have drug use and we have uh, gangs selling drugs and controlling the brothels and stuff like that controlling brothels we know that that happens <laughs> drug trade we have some hints but we don't know much but just to make it interesting so you could have games and that like down in the dirt as well i i I had to invent this layer to how i thought it could have looked and it might have looked something like that we don't know because we just i mean almost no one in medieval times wrote about how the big cities and the new urban centers their squalor problems we just we we don't know they were not that interested in their own problems sometimes Mm. Uh, but i took some liberties uh, when it comes to historical accuracy there how much do you want to say about the structure of of what you've written and the the setting i mean it's it's a very, very detailed... Well, I'm just trying to compare it to other Mithras supplements. I don't think there's anything as detailed as this. Maybe Constantinople, but to me, like something at this scale, what you've constructed for the, the city, I don't think there's really anything else that, that certainly does this. It's at least as detailed and certainly in de- more in depth than virtually everything out there, right? Because the I mean, the 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 setting that you have there is is pretty constrained in and of itself, and then you you go go even deeper into particular sections of it. So so to just kind of show how deep you can go with these schemes. Let's try to start like at the top because at the most top level book of schemes is a is is an extension to the world described in book of quests which details a new region very shortly which lies to the east of the realm and has a more where the realm has this 12th 13th century england france wipe classic medieval then uh, this area called vitrinkia has a, a much more 50 late mid to late 15th century german uh, theme and it just lays out the overall region just to have some idea of where you are you're in a in a in a fairly loose loosely tied empire where the emperor doesn't have a whole lot of say in local matters it has gunpowder which it, it tightly controls trade to with the realm just to ensure that black powder weapons doesn't don't get too far uh, abroad and um, and then you have a bit of history about uh, how the emperors came to be and, and stuff like that and then it it focuses on this one city, Gildan, which is um it has a province around it. The city itself is about roughly the size of historical Florence, which was quite a large city, but not it, it, it's not uh, it's it's in the um I think I mentioned the population of something like twenty five thousand or something like that, which is a large medieval city, but there were also bigger ones, and there are also bigger ones in Petrinkia. So it's not like the capital or anything. It's not the seat of the emperor. But what it is is that it's um it's an old mining town which got big and rich from 
gold, uh, gold mines uh, when the gold was found in the mountains and it was sort of a backwater before then but then gold was found and all the what in modern in modern terms corporations but all the big uh, merchant houses and mining houses moved in and urbanized the area and brought in new traditions which also brings has a certain level of tension when it comes to, it comes to the cult level of, of the um, of the book, and then the, that golden period with gold flowing from the uh, from the mountains ended about a quarter century ago, where suddenly all the uh, not suddenly, but the veins ran out. There was no more no, no more gold, and the nobles who had gotten fat from uh, from the taxes levied on the um, the merchant and mining houses which had come in. Uh, to to like to to get this gold from the mountains, they completely more or less collapsed because they were so dependent on it. While the merchants and the miners had invested and in, into other sources of revenue, so what we get is it's a short civil war where the burghers and the middle upper middle classes actually oust the nobles. They keep them. But uh, we have a situation that actually occurred sometimes in medieval times where you have nobles on the top, but they're, they're bound hand and feet by the middle classes who actually have the money. And that makes more interesting than just having this top-down feudal society. And that sort of is where it is at this point. Uh, the the burghers have 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 controlled things like this for a, a generation, but now things are begin, beginning to steer both in the undercity, both in the minds of people when it comes to like the religion and the cults, and then of course also nobles who want to rectify the situation and regain their proper place in the world. And, and so the world is uh, this is set for for schemes on all the different layers, right? And then I, I detail the city, going as you say into a fair bit of detail about the city and its 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 various cults, its various organizations. Of course, there's noble houses, there's guilds, and then there's gangs. There's also a, a militia thrown in uh, to protect the workers from all the evil gangs. And as I said, it's 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 based on 15th century Germany, but only to some degree. Like the weapons and the armor and the industry are like that, but it doesn't have a Catholic church. It it has uh, actually. I, I took a twist on that and said hey how would how would uh, f- urban fairly civilized animists look yes. and the main religion is 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 yeah. is an animist religion yeah. that is in the sort of same state that the catholic church was in in the late 15th century which means it's corrupt to the bone uh, so most of these shamans can't actually summon a spirit anymore, but they're just political animals who who have certain privileges and and certain abilities that I, either from some of the spirits they they still can control through uh, you know fetches and, and stuff and and also through things that they just over the centuries have have accumulated both wealth but also with the ability to uncannily know what people are doing. Were you tempted to actually make it more of a historical setting? Because I could sort of see some of the things that you were doing making it a fictional setting. And I, you know, what was it to give you more freedom to put all those kinds of things in and to to play around with the with with things like cults and and that kind of thing? What was? It? Yeah, yeah, definitely, um, definitely. It was to give myself more freedom as an, as a writer and also as a world builder. For instance, if, if I was doing 15th century Germany, I you know I would have to have the Catholic Church, and it would have to be on the brink of tearing itself apart into the the Reformation. I'd have to have an extreme dichotomy about sexuality, very stringent rules uh, for some people, and and complete no rules for others. And and you know it's, that's fine and all. I, I I enjoy games like that myself to some degree, but I just wanted to do something different. So the the religion and the main religion in this area is, has has almost nothing to say about sex for instance, which means that you have a lot of more colorful NPCs when it comes to that department that I could anyway justify in a historical supplement. And also I could play around with 
with more things. Like it's it's more fun designing the cults and the religion this way. I think I'm a medieval nerd. So if I say I want to do something historically accurate, then I do it historically accurate, which means I I you know I apply sources and I, you, can, you can track my reasoning about things. And that would just uh, that would become very strange. I would I would put a lot of limits on myself where I would actually choose the his, uh, historically correct alternative and not the fun alternative. It was it was important for me to put that line for myself to not just become because otherwise I would have I would still be writing this in 10 years and it would never get published yeah. because I would just be researching 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 <laughs> I noticed when you're discussing especially the cults I think I had the thought that this is a bit maybe this is far away but I thought in your presentation of the cults I think unusually I haven't seen well I actually have seen it a little bit in Monster Island where the where your presentation of the cults I, I'm kind of imagining is there a a GM facing description of the cult or and or organization and is there a player facing description of the cult and organization because I kind of think that that might be interesting has have you thought about that or um I have not but it's a good idea um so just have yeah sure mm. you could have you could have something that you like a handout yeah, sort of like you're thinking like the appendix that's in Monster Island where where you just give player player oriented data. That that's not a bad idea. Yeah, because both with the cults, but also but the, the political situation in the city because yeah. everything is right now up to the GM to narrate, right? But then again, if if I supply too much information, it might ruin their outlook on how they want to exactly do things. What I was um, thinking, so, yeah. but yeah. on individual on individual organizations, sure, um, that that's not a bad idea. I've got I've got kind of a kind of a, a smear of question I suppose if you think about it. So the stereotypical gaming group is an adventuring band, and the the question comes up is how how might they go about using them? I think we kind of touched on it a little bit with the Three Musketeers example earlier. How they're involved in a lot of schemes, although they don't really perpetrate many schemes themselves. One one other thing that I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on here and kind of lead into another part is that when we when we got a draft copy of this I I I was very interested to see that you had a whole section on investments. Is that honestly something I feel is missing from some games? Right, like it it feels like a thing that could be that could be there if for a particular type of player. And is I mean is that a, is that a good is that a good way for the adventuring party to get themselves involved in a scheme and to start planning schemes or to be uh, a yeah. tool for other people's schemes? Yeah, definitely because the so what characterizes the classical adventuring party is that they're rootless, right? Uh, of course, they might be tied to, uh, uh, you know, um, a culture or a region, or they might have loyalty to some lord. But in general, they can go whatever they want, and their wealth is portable because it's it's tied up in their armor and the weapons and the magic items, and their in other systems their bags of holding, right? But the second that that adventuring party says, "Okay, we have a thousand gold pieces or ten thousand gold pieces," Let's buy an inn or, or something like that, which has happened in one of my games, by the way, where the whole point of the campaign was getting money enough to buy an inn. It's um, always ships in my game. They always want a ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but ships are still portable, mm. right? But but the second they get into that, they tie themselves to a locale and then try themselves tie themselves into a political framework and a culture. And so you could have like a, the classic adventuring party who then gets a lot of money, buys an inn, 
and then suddenly things start oh there are other innkeepers and they have they have opinions about how i should run my inn and they are guild rules and they say they're gonna beat me up if i don't get into the guild and and uh, no one told me that when i bought this place oh that's why the old owner had a broken leg uh, and all these things right so the second you tie them down to one place uh, in, in any meaningful manner uh, you need to sort of starting to put some color in that place and there's going to be people who don't like each other and there's going to be things happening in the political system and there's going to be unpopular laws and there's going to be rules that are 50 or 100 years old which you don't agree with and all these things are comes quite natural to people when you just when as soon as you start investing them in the game beyond oh i have this cool barbarian who wields a great sword as soon as they get more invested than that and they start to think of it as their property and their life then these things will come naturally because at some point they're gonna walk uh, walk over and say hey um the neighboring lot to our inn is up for sale could can i buy it and then oh the statutes of the guild says that you can't do that because that would put you over the 100 square meters rule and you're going to say what what we need to change that and then suddenly it's a political game as long as they don't just march in and kill someone of course but <laughs> You're getting into dependent NPCs, things like that, and more of a, like there's maybe a wider group of people that you become interested in as players that are important to you and that are perhaps uh, yeah. serving your interest, and, and they are going to get into trouble. And it, that's good yeah. fodder for making the situation more fraught than it is, and it's especially if it doesn't involve the players directly. It's like, well, we've got to think more carefully about how we're doing things. If other people that we're interested mm. in are, are getting into trouble or have problems, this kind of thing. Uh, regarding the investments that you just shot, touched upon, I have uh, like two examples from my own group where we used them in play. One was the, the essentially a campaign start. They were all dead broke. I mean, one of them had nothing left and, and a few others had to like a few de few days worth of, of, of money to eat. But one of them was a, was a merchant woman from a, from a destitute merchant house who had been ruined by guild politics because they had been outmaneuvered and completely broke. And as soon as they, she, she achieved the first few thousand silver pieces from um, doing a job for a noble, she, she started investing it back into the business and, and started managing that. And, and it became like a focus point for it. Like, how many money can I get from other sort of uh, services that I use as, as a lawyer, as an adventurer and stuff like that? And, and then pull them back into my, into my family business. So that was the focal point. It actually became the, it became the focal point of the entire party because they, they sort of like rallied around her and trying to spearhead her first to become alderman and then later to gain more foothold in the city because they realized when she did well the other party members did well because she would like spread the wealth around to them and and that was not planned at all that was just player activity like getting this dynamic and then the other one was this uh, former smuggler that i mentioned who, who wanted to start his own smuggling business later on uh, who again with the same money that they got from this job started hiring uh, like orphan boys to like deliver uh, deliver messages first and then later on deliver drugs for him which he got from some of his connections and he started actually became a, a drug dealer who uh, who mostly served uh, the nobles when they were having parties and they wanted something extra to spice up the booze. They both work really well as, as as both as a focal point for the character, but also for having this this group with connections in all layers of the city through these investments and through through the money that was tied up in those investments because that made them valuable. They were they were more than just an NPC. They were actually a, a number of silver pieces with a, a growth rate, a return on investment rate applied to them, which yeah. which they could see like it was there it was their savings it was the measure of their success so far to some degree.
I like I like how that that not only does it provide sort of an for an anchor for the group, but it also provides a goal for the group, and mm. and and then and then it also provides and I'm going to use a metaphor for this. It provides them with a, another weapon for getting things done. It's another tool for for moving through society that steps that steps a little bit beyond you know just pulling out your longsword to get things done or you know, using magic to get things done, it, it really expands that view out substantially past what a traditional adventuring party might normally consider. I mean, like, they've got a lot more going on at this point. Sure, they can do all that stuff. They can mm. go hike through a dungeon just fine, but they have a lot more yeah. depth, a, not a lot more depth for, for when it comes into the end of that. And heck, if they need to go hike into that dungeon, that's good. But now they have the tools to say, all right, now I can get a better sword or a better armor, or I can get a support crew to go along with this much more easily than I could otherwise. Um, it doesn't have mm. to be all on my own to make things happen. I, I really, I really like that a lot. That's uh, I'm, I'm looking, I'm honestly looking forward to using that in my, in my own game quite a bit. I, my own player, they like to do that sort of thing. So I'm like, oh yeah, this will be good. This will be good to get them thinking mm. a little bit differently. Yeah, and and a ship is a classical example. I mean, it, as as you mentioned, your group wanting to have ships because. The whole reason we have insurance businesses originally because of ships, uh, ships and water wheels, uh, essentially, because they were they were the large investments that several people had to pool together to build. Because uh, usually a village for a ship or several craftsmen for a water wheel, either bakers or blacksmiths right, or whatever. Right brewers whoever need that water power right and they were rarely the because the nobles were so starved for cash to fund their wars all the time they rarely did these investments um, but the the middle class people went together usually and 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 that's where shares come from the first like publicly owned shares are water wheels in france as far as i know hmm. I did not know that. Then I will. I will have to. I will have to use that. I've, I've I've heard of shares of ships before, but I didn't know that it was really water wheels at the beginning of that. It might also have been ships, right? But but the first time we have like contracts on them. Of course, mm-hmm. at that point, it was probably also a fairly. It, it's a different thing, right? Because if you own like say a tenth of a ship, and that ship goes out, and it can either plunder or it can trade, right? So let's say it's it's, it's doing trade, and then there's profit. You split that profit ten ways. Each right. kind of share. A water wheel is a, a bit different because it has continual output as long as someone works it. But someone has to work it, which means they need pay. So you have expenses first. And, and, and then again, there's this continual output. And one water wheel might serve several millers coming in with their grain. And some have more grain than others. And you need rules for deciding who goes first because they all need to mill- you use it at the same time right after harvest, maybe. So so there are all these things that you need to manage, which you not, might not necessarily need to manage on a ship. And I think that's why those are the first contracts you have. But I think the system problem, I mean, saying, okay, we split the ship four ways is, is so basic that I think that has existed essentially since Bronze Age. But getting it down in a contract and having rules about what a share means, how many votes that is, when those votes are applied, all these things is, is probably why why we have that water, um, water wheels first. That is really cool. I haven't seen something this quite this detailed. Most of the rest of it is the detail of this city, this one city. Like I suppose to tie up with our with the combat discussion we've had, there's quite a lot of detail here about the particular cultural the weapons. I think you've expanded the default weapons descriptions and options a bit. 
most of the weapons are, you know, in the core rulebook. Uh, I just carry them over for ease of reference, uh, and I offer descriptions for them, which I don't think are in the core rulebook. And then I add some more suitable to the period. And then there's there's this crossover with Mythic, Mythic Constantinople when it comes to the firearms and when it comes to uh, the flanged and the puncturing uh, traits. Yeah. Uh, I had my own versions of those actually uh, before, but then Mythic uh, Constantinople came along and I had to like align. But I'd say that the, those are fact, actually probably better than mine, uh, and certainly better playtested than than mine have been. So 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 that was that was actually quite fine. And then I've, you know, mostly added things like there's the Langesmesser, uh, the one-handed German long knife, uh, which I add. And there's things like the Plankson, which is a peasant's way of trying to deal with uh, with knights in armor in, in various rebel rebellions. Uh, in in my setting, is described as like an improvised weapon that not improvised, but something you could like build in in, in your own workshop uh, during the this earlier civil war against the nobles I mentioned, right? So you can imagine carpenters just mashing together something to like uh, fight the nobles' uh, armored house guard and stuff like that. And then uh, I I go into one major thing I change is the price level to suit the uh, the environment and, and the period because the default Mithras prices are geared towards an adventuring party which is it goes out into dangerous situations and finds chests full of money or they gain or they do something and then they gain the favor of a lord who throws silver at them right and that means you have you have to have a quite high equipment price because you have this economy which is quickly completely disentangled from from ordinary people right which means you have mithras states that an ordinary person earns one to two silver pieces a day and then a sword costs i think a short sword is 125 silver pieces and that might be suitable for a dark ages game late iron age early medieval game which is sort of mithras devil setting so that's quite all right but for the 15th century that is just not appropriate in the 15th century, anyone but a becker could do- go down and buy a used sword in the marketplace. They might not necessarily be allowed to carry it about, but they could take it home and hang it on the wall and use it for self-defense. Because we're, ta- we're talking we're talking massive industrial outputs from some of the uh, big centers when it comes to arms and armor. We're talking centuries of, of second-hand items just continuing to pile up uh, and and i've based most of the prices so, so the, the the base price level is the same the common worker will have between one and two silver pieces a day but the prices have been slashed a whole bit a whole lot something some items is like a tenth of the original mythos price i actually did quite a bit of research trying to find out some historical prices to like try to get the price level but it means that you will have peasant soldiers uh, as let's say professional soldiers but, but from a peasant background which can actually maybe loan the money to buy themselves a shirt of mail and a helmet and a shield before going to war which was just never possible in the uh, in, with the standard mithras prices um and that would be and that is suitable for the era where even arches in the hundred years wars some often wore mail shirts uh, at least in, in the um, in the documents we have or, or later on the brigandine so a, a major price slash and i also go so that creates one another problem like right there's high status items and, and common items. So you can have secondhand items which have lower quality and have various problems with them, but at a reduce an even more reduced price. And then there are some additional rules for enhancements, 
so you can essentially stack the desirable quality multiple times and and there are also some new traits uh, no new enhancements that you can you can add because we're again doing like late 15th century it's 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 a period where like pole arms are exploding in all manner of different things you have a huge variety in sword design and shield design and all manner of things so i tried to make a system for de- doing this with enhancements where you can essentially either if you play a craftsman or you hire a craftsman try to design to some degree your own weapons if you have the cash so you can say oh i want a sword but i wanted to be able to have stun location as well then there are enhancements for doing that because there i've, I've handled original war swords which had uh, i've handled one original war, war sword in the national museum of denmark which had a, a massive pummel which is was essentially a club head and i've handled other swords which had a hollow very light pummel so so you have this huge variation which i've tried to capture some of and and then of course i also go into both the firearms of the period and 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 how they would would be used in an urban setting because firearms are not this i i have i've, I've allowed for for the first wheel lock pistols which uh, I think that Leonardo da Vinci has a drawing of one at around 1492, and we have the first hard fact in like 1510 or something. So, right. so they're they're like right on the edge of, of of this period, and that's it's fine, that's fun. But other than pistols, the the firearms are not when you just look at them, they're not that suitable for an urban environment. But then I've also tried to get give some guidelines on how you actually could use them to some effect, because otherwise people are going to look at them and say four rounds of reload. That's never going to work in a 10 by 10 feed room against a dragon or something like that right but if, if you again take a step up and think okay but let's say you're fighting house guards of the nobility and you have like an ambush where you fire all your firearms and you just disappear run two blocks further up reload and wait until the armored personnel comes after you again and you can fire again yeah, or you can make right. street uh, you can block off streets to decide where they go and then hit them with firearms and all these things yeah. can make them suitable in, in, a, in an urban skirmish I can think of some players that would be very excited about the prices that you've got for some of the stuff. But the but what firearms are quite expensive. The cheapest ones are not that expensive, actually. But they're, again, they're, right. they're very, very slow to reload. But if you want a wheel lock pistol, that's going to set you back, right? Or even a serpentine is, is still quite expensive. And of course, with these slash prices, also, I, I have some more detailed uh, character generation uh, wealth tables i try to as you grow up the social ladder of course you have more wealth but that wealth is often tied into uh, non-liquid assets mm-hmm. let's say you generate a noble in standard mithras a civilized noble that civilized noble is easily going to have ten thousand sol- silver pieces available but most of that wealth would probably be tied up into expensive clothing expensive furniture a nice manor or at least it, maybe if you were ro- rolling up the character maybe you don't own the manor but part of those ten thousand represents that you're part of the family and you own a certain share of that or you will when you inherit and all sorts mm-hmm. of things right so i try to do that in character generation tables where as you progress up the social ranks more and more of your wealth is actually tied up into non-liquid assets which means that even nobles are strapped for cash a lot of the time so that sort of balances out the price level and and puts in puts some an inherent conflict into the story where like you can't just well i'm gonna whip out my inn and pay for that pay for that tonight you that just doesn't work like that you can the the real the yeah. real liquid power is is harder harder to come by 
Yeah, and especially for nobles, that's that's quite an important point because otherwise you you're a noble, you have access to a hundred thousands of silver pieces. Yeah, but those are tied up in five manors and two hunting lodges, right? And and all those manors go back three hundred years. You're not just gonna sell them because that you're gonna be the stain on on your family ancestry tree for generations, right? So so you still have to go sell your vote in the council to a, a banker who has a lot of money because you need money to pay off a bribe or whatever. Uh, and that's, you, if, if you look at, again, going back to like the HBO Rome series and the Borgia series, I mean, they, they're top of the world. They're the top of Rome and, and, and late medieval uh, Rome, so ancient Rome and late medieval Rome, respectively. And they never have cash. It's, 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 it's quite great, actually, because everything is tied up into assets and servants and uh, armies and whatever, not, whatnot. I also detail a lot of, I think one of you wanted to know something about that, but uh, like the venoms and, and uh, alchemy substances and stuff like that. Yeah, and I try to really keep those low-key, right? So there's no there's no really like blade venom that you just apply to a sword and then slash someone and then you do plus two damage. It is, it's nothing like that. These are things that you can use to make your chances with magic higher, or uh, but it will discolor your, I think, skin pigmentation. Or they are drugs that you can take yourself for recreational use, or you can give them to others, like loosen them up before you try to seduce them or whatever. And then there's classic like like pain painkiller. I think I have uh, like opium in there, right? Yeah. But called of course tears of the puppy. I try to keep them really low key and not not go completely dislocate them from the the historical roots that I wanted. Which venoms were actually used like originally and for what purpose and, and to what effect then try to do that. I also do the same with the alchemical substances that they are like a firecracker and a, a, um, a smoke pack in there because again these these are people who have a fairly good understanding of black powder and of um, you know tar sulfur and stuff like that right so yeah. so they can use this they can, if you, they you have a smoke pack which you light but of course you have to light it you just don't throw it and then it creates a lot of ill fumes that block visibility they're kept very close to what you'd see in the real world again i try to provide some oh forget all these things that you see in the, the player's handbook these are things that are closer to reality but still fun so it shouldn't it shouldn't be taken as a, a as something boring i try to make them very useful for their respective uses and then there's diseases, of course, because it's an urban city in the medieval period. <laughs> uh, I even have sepsis, so uh, so yeah. just getting uh, going back to the fight in uh, fight in the mud uh, can easily end up with an infected wound. So if you're a particularly nasty game master. Did you have in mind a larger adventure or campaign that touches on the power blocks and the groups and that kind of thing? As a separate supplement, I'm kind of thinking, or how would you introduce people to the setting and the kind of game it's going to be? And then I am thinking really then of certain of the older Warhammer adventures and supplements and the way that they did things. So they had the adventure driving players through, maybe in a very linear way, but then they had all the detail of the setting sitting around the adventure. That yeah, so the introductory adventure takes place in mostly in the lower cities, but it touches upon themes that can draw the players into things going on in the upper channels of the city, in both the middle class and the um, the upper classes amongst the nobles so so using that will give the game master some handles to further draw them in to the other things so that's one way of doing it 
the other way of doing it is to simply take the, the game master, you know, perusing the book, finding out where he or she wants the campaign to take place, either in the upper city, the middle city, or the lower city, and then reading the various, you know, cults and uh, entries on organizations and they have a lot of interconnections and then trying to like and a lot of there are a lot of plot hooks and then you can just start picking from this you can so you can go down and say oh i like this gang and then take one of the plot hooks there and start building the first adventure around that and that would then naturally lead you to come into conflict with some of the other gangs and probably some of the guilds and then you would sort of start expanding the game into the middle classes that's sort of what i did with uh, my game they were all very very broke when we started so they they essentially had maybe one was a complete one was a drunk who had sold all his possessions except his old rusty messer even his buttons and he had nothing left and then the two others had from to maybe a couple of days worth of uh, money to buy food and the other they had a place to sleep with some family but that was it and they then they started building up from there so their first priority was we need to get some money we need to get some sort of job essentially and then uh, that of course led to some missions which eventually led them to have a sponsor who, who gave them a, a stipend a weekly stipend and then things ramped up from there right so you can do it either way one is very direct and helps ease into it the other is very character driven but you can you can you can essentially take this whole work and then you can dump them down into one quarter of one part of the city and have the whole adventure take place there and then just take things things as you go you don't have to either neither you or your players have to understand the entire setting to get some benefit from this and you don't even have to use the entire setting if you want to use this in you know in on monster island or on rome or uh, in mythic constantinople or whatever you can just you can essentially take one of the organizations and then plug those together with the the relations they have to some other organizations out and then just use that and you can probably build a whole campaign around some of the schemes going on inside one noble house yeah you have sample schemes going all the way through there are a lot of plot hooks (laughs) That's that's great. No, I can I can easily see you didn't go into this writing this as a uh, necessarily a, as having a narrative to tell or a story. This is this is a a big collection of little little stories. That, yeah, that and, and some are of course more overarching, right? There are some that will, if some schemes that if they come to fruition will affect the entire city, but there's no nothing that will like destroy the entire city or or something like that. Going into it, thinking that you want to tie all things together is uh, therein probably lies madness. Uh, It's much better to let these things evolve naturally and then just plop them down one place and have things go from there. Because then naturally, at some point, someone's going to say, okay, so so who's the ultimate of the, of the Vegas guild? And you can like look up and say, oh, if, if that's one of the guilds I've, I've described, I think it is, then um, in detail, then you say, oh, this person. And then uh, you can start getting drawn into those uh, schemes that are in, in the guild chapter and stuff like that, right? And then natural that will uh, some will then so if you start in a low city and then you like work start to get in contact with guilds through the Vegas guild then at some point you might start getting into contact with a lower noble house or you might get contact into other gangs in other parts of the city so you'll have these spider webs of of npcs and relations and things you know and of course that puts a certain burden on both the players to keep attention 
and to write things down. And it's also also for the game master to like be clear in, in, in what they're saying. But as as mentioned, that there's this whole running schemes chapter, which makes some very concrete advice on how to do some of these things. Uh, and if, if you have a player group who doesn't you know, can't remember things from one session to the, an, another or are not that invested, then either use this to train them to do that, or maybe maybe they should just do a dungeon crawl. Well, one of the key things that you've done is emphasize the player-driven nature of the schemes. It's like it's not the GM embroiling players into this scheme that somebody else is running, although you, you can do that. And this is from my experience where I've done things wrong, I think, or it hasn't worked so well, is that I have set up a scheme in which I've involved the PCs, and that runs the danger of them not being interested, or it being so complicated or so mysterious that too much missing information that they just don't get what's going on their attention is not caught because this is not really to do with us either they lose interest or they're just getting barreled along by somebody else's plan the best way to do this kind of thing is to make sure that the pcs and the players are driving it and there might be complications but ideally they need to be driving the, the scheme yeah and and even and, but if you're if you're doing the other thing even if you're driving the scheme, I mean, those problems of too much information or things not making sense is still can still be a problem. One of the things I found works is to try to like if if you're playing a, an ordinary game of dungeon crawls or adventures or something like that, you'd have you probably have each session or each adventure thinking, okay, so what are the rewards? How many silver pieces do they get? What sort of magic items do they get? Maybe a favor from a lord or something like that they can get if they do this quest right if you add to that list information you can sort of in your own mental framework when planning a session you can think okay so what have they learned how how have their mental state changed at the end of the session so first off that makes it very concrete for you you have to think just like in, in if planning dungeon crawls you need to think okay so at the end of the session the paladin has a new uh, sort of plus three with flaming in, in this situation you just need to think okay at the end of the session they know someone is manipulating market prices and they know that person is is uh, one of these three and then you can start to guide the session towards that rather than hoping that they stumble over the information uh, along the way you, you can have it in your notes that this needs to be a precondition of the session that they know this and if everything goes totally wrong and they just stumble around and they miss all the investigation rules and they all hung over so they can't think for themselves, you can always have either just someone tell them. So you can have a mysterious visit from, from a, a sponsor at the end of the session to just set the stage for the next session by telling them flat out if they've blundered about. Or you can, you can have them like spend a log point. If they haven't spent all the lock points in combat, as you can ask, okay, you you you're clearly frustrated. You don't know what's going on. If one of you can spend a lock point, then do that. They do that, and then again, they a letter arrives from a cousin, which may get some things hints that may, makes them put two and two together, right? Um, so treat information as a reward on par with magic items and silver shillings and a lot becomes easier for your mental state when you're planning and when you're acting as a game master. At what stage in production is Book of Schemes now with the design mechanism? The manuscript is, is more or less done and it's been edited two rounds of editing and it's been play tested for several years. But it, the testing is still going, ongoing and I'm, I'm still making minor edits uh, here and there, adding a text box explaining something or, or fixing an example if it's unclear. The bulk of the text is done and we're hoping to move into to the later stage of a production of production uh, in in 2021 for release that year. So next year sometime. I don't know whether that is early or late 2021. 
And you're working on other stuff, Dan? Yeah, I have another con- combat module written up. I've sent it to Loss, and I'm waiting for his feedback. And I'm also going to have to run it myself. And then that will invariably to changes. And then uh, a more public uh, playtest, uh, like last time. And then release for that. So, so this year, hopefully. And then I have another combat module uh, tailing that, which will probably be in, in Gilden, uh, in the city. Uh, focusing on on exactly what I was talking about regarding um, low-key combat, daggers, knives, boss duels, and how to uh, how to do that. Uh, so it'll probably be a, a barb roll in Gilden somewhere. And then I, ha- I have several more combat modules that I want to write, but I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to stick with one at a time, just to have a chance of actually completing something. But uh, if if when I'm done with these two, then hopefully one covering ambushes and one covering modern combat maybe or firearms uh, in, in like uh, renaissance firearms stuff like that i could i would like to do one around a chase from with the chase rules and i would like to do another one around the social combat rules where you have um, a social combat and a physical combat going on at the same time in influencing each other but i'm not sure how to structure that in a clear and uh, concise manner <laughs> uh, uh, i'll be excited to see the uh, the firearm stuff i've been doing some of that with my group and it, it is it is quite quite the change for them they were they were a little bit surprised and oh this is very different i'm like oh yeah and they're like eh, it feels a little bit more real i'm like oh mm, that's good We've been so so lucky to have Dan True on with us today. We had previous episode with the combat discussion. I am I've really enjoyed it, and we hope you have too. Until next time, yeah. we will uh, we will see you on opposed roles.